What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Angler's Happy Hour podcast. In today's show, we chat with our buddy, Terry Battisti, the host of BassArchives.com. Terry gives us some awesome history about the birth of the flipping technique. It was a really cool blast from the past talking to him, and we hope you guys like it. But before we go any further, I want to tell you guys that this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Hercules Tires, the official tire of the Angler's Happy Hour podcast. I've personally trusted the Hercules, TerraTrack, AT2, and Power ST2 to get my truck and boat trailer to every event around the country safely for the past two years. These tires are long-lasting, quiet on the road, and most importantly, incredibly reliable. If you're in the market for a new set of truck or trailer tires, head over to HerculesTires.com and see why these tires are such an incredible value. You can also find out more by following Hercules Tires on Facebook or Instagram at Hercules Tires. We've got a pretty special episode here because we've got a great guest right from the get-go. We actually referenced his website a little bit in our episode two weeks ago, and uh, he had reached out. It's been quite a while since I talked to you, Terry, but man, we've known each other for about 10 years, and uh, you've got you've got Bass Fishing Archives fired back up. What's going on your way, man? How are you this morning? Uh, doing great. Uh, just sitting here in uh, beautiful East Tennessee, and uh, yeah, about uh, 2012, uh, I started up the uh, Bass Fishing Archives website, and um, it was going, you know, going great guns. And then in 2015, some life events hit and uh, I had to put the brakes on. Uh, work was, uh, had me traveling about 300 days a year and, and I was finding I was doing interviews and, and working until one, two o'clock in the morning in hotels. And, and I, I, I couldn't keep it up anymore. And uh, so I had to take the website down. And about, I would say, Nine months ago, I was contacted by another writer buddy of mine, Pete Robbins, who uh, you, you probably all know. Uh, and he asked me if I'd be interested in starting the website up again, that the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame was interested in, in doing something with me and the website. And uh, at that point, I had changed jobs, uh, had no longer, or was no longer traveling 300 days a year, and uh, was kind of itching to get back into it anyway. So we kind of brokered a uh, non-financial deal we're essentially sharing uh rss feeds and uh we went from there so started the website up back in march and uh, we're kind of going strong so that's that's, cool. uh, that's what's been going on the last 10 years josh awesome what's your uh what's your day job dude can you i can't i can't remember what uh what you do to uh, pay the bills uh well um i'm a chemical engineer, but I've got 20 some odd years, upper 20 years in uh, nuclear uh, engineering. Wow. So, uh, yeah. So when you and I met, I was working at uh, Idaho National Laboratory uh, and uh, I did a lot of work for the Department of Defense. And then in 2013, in fact, I had a, a phone interview that week that I was there in Arizona and you and I went fishing. Yep. Uh, and that was a phone interview that I had to get to North Carolina. So I went to work for North Carolina uh, for seven years, uh, working uh, out of Fort Bragg. And uh, then uh, at the age of 54, my wife got pregnant. Uh, and uh, now I have a three-year-old running around and I didn't want to be awesome, a dad. Dude. Didn't want to be a dad that was constantly gone. Uh, so I looked for work elsewhere and I ended up here at, uh, at Oak Ridge National Lab, uh, essentially still doing nuclear engineering work for the Department of Defense. Wow, dude, that's some, wow. that's some intense stuff, but man, congrats on the little one. I had no idea. That's, yeah. that's really cool, man. We've, we've got kids the same age, Nick and I and you, man. That's, uh, that's, that's awesome, dude. A boy or girl? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it, uh, the government spends millions of dollars trying to keep 13-year-olds from getting pregnant, and I think they need to throw some of that money to us 50-year-olds because maybe we forget you know, how this happens. Awesome. <laughs> so awesome, dude. Right on. Right on. Uh, well, sweet. And, and since you've moved to Tennessee, do you, do you find much time to fish? Because I know, I mean, dude, I know how it is with a three-year-old, and, and you've got a, obviously a, a very serious regular job and the website. Do you get any fishing in these days? So I actually uh, 
was I did not put my boat in the water from October of 2014 until about last year. Uh, and since then, I've been doing a bit of fishing. Now, my boat right next to me is in shambles. It looks like spaghetti because I'm refitting all my electronics because all people like you uh, have convinced me that I need, you know, 15 grand worth of electronics on the boat. So I've got it torn down right now. But nice. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm 15 minutes from Wattsboro, 15 minutes from Loudon Teleco. Uh, when we first got here to Tennessee, I was living on Norris for a couple months until we found a house. Uh, fished uh, my first tournament since 2008. That uh, was a 175 boat team event that uh, Morristown Marine put it on. Uh, got ninth place, limited. Uh, yeah, got bro. a $700 check, you know. Nice. So I was happy with that. Yeah, don't throw buzz baits in November at uh, Morris. They don't eat them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's too cold for that, man. Those bass should know better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, dude, your $700 bought you a, a third of a transducer for your new electronics. So uh, that's cool. <laughs> exactly. Bought a power cord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got two Solex 15s that I'm putting on it. And that's the other thing I had to make. Uh, so I, my, my boat's a 2008 Cougar FTD Bass Cat and the biggest uh, unit that you could put in the dash of that thing was 7 inches so that, that right there just That's tells crazy. you the history yeah that right there that tells you how far electronics have advanced since 2008 to now Dude, I that's... mean you can't yeah so I had a machine uh, an aluminum plate because you can't buy one Sherm's Marine doesn't make one you know, uh, BT, uh, Bass Tackle, whatever, I can't remember. Bass, Bass Boat Technologies. Technologies doesn't make one. Yeah. Yeah, they don't make anything like that. So I had to make my own, you know. You know, yada, you, know yada, it's, yada. you know, it's funny is I'm obsessed of watching all the Bassmasters on YouTube. Yeah. All the old stuff. And I think there was like a 2008 or a 2009. Um, that would have been Elite Series at that point, right? I think they mm -hmm. started in 06. Yep. But, um, I think Kevin Van Dam had one power pole on his boat. <laughs> right when and they it, come out right yeah, yeah but it was just in in the electronics i remember uh i can't remember who it was but they had like one little graph on the front and they had the cover the like the lorance plastic cover on it weren't even using it morning. like right right yep. so pretty wild <laughs> yeah it's i mean if you want to do a show on electronics i mean i've got uh lorance and hummingbird uh uh catalogs from back in the 70s in fact some of the lorance stuff i have from back in the 60s uh it's insane how there was really no technological advance uh from the 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 green box or the red box depending upon because actually lorance didn't they they didn't only make a green box they made one that was colored red also uh all the way through the early to mid 70s when they came up with the first paper graph and Vexilar came out with a paper graph also at the same time. Um, but Vexilar, I believe, was the first company to come out with a straight line graph, whereas uh, Lowrance had the curved line graph, which you, if you remember the old flasher, the, the stylus would go around like that. Well, Lowrance actually made a graph that the stylus went like this. And so when it, huh. when it burned the paper, it was burning it in an arc. Uh, kind of cool. But... And then uh, the LCDs came out in what was it the late '80s, and they were horrible. It was, yeah, we've come a long way. So we had John Murray on, and uh, you, the listeners, have heard it, but um, he's got some classic stories about like the old days. You know, he he was involved with that, and as a Western fisherman, he was always fishing deep and stuff. And he talked about how he really liked the paper graphs, but he's like, man, you'd go through a whole roll of paper in a day, and it was a pain, and um and, and so his to, one of his first L, uh, go ahead rob i used to run a paper graph it was like it was like i think 15 or 20 bucks maybe 30 bucks a day in paper you'd burn through that more thing. than gas dude <laughs> back then yeah yep. that's insane because yeah, it was like seven bucks a roll back in the 80s yeah and uh if you had that thing on and you were using it uh while you were you know sitting on a spot even with the with the with the, the the chart speed turned down. I mean, you'd burn through it. I mean, it was yep. crazy. And then changing it in the wind out in the middle of the lake and two foot swells was <laughs> just a joy. <laughs> what a pain, yep. dude. Well, you'd put your trolley motor on spot lock in that scenario, right? So you could <laughs> that was called focus. an anchor. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you've got a classic story and he told it on the show but it's been a year I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners haven't haven't heard that episode uh where he was running one of the first lcd units and his his truck was like had a huge sticker of the brand or whatever on his side and like he was like the guy the spokesman but in all the first whatever few years that he had this unit he never saw a fish on the graph um because they were just so poor so he's at lake pleasant one day and he's idling over this deep hump getting ready to fish it you know and he sees a fish the first time ever and he goes i look over my co-angler i tell him get your rod there's the biggest school ever under us right now because he saw one you know (laughs) and he caught like 35 pounds off that spot where he finally (laughs) saw a fish oh my gosh uh good old john yeah, they, they've come a long way, electronics, man. But um, so we we were, your website is bassfishingarchives.com. Um, man, you've really been putting a ton uh, of bass, stuff up bass on Bass hyphen, it's, it's actually bass hyphen archives.com. Well, thank you. You uh, you saved me there. Yeah, no worries. Good. Okay. Um, <laughs> you update it pretty much every week, right? Every day. Every day. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. Dude, it's such a, a user-friendly, easy website. You know, even the articles, man, you look at the articles and, and there's an estimated amount of time that it takes to read them. It's, it's awesome. But one of the things that we really want to talk to you about today is all the work you've done about the birth of flipping and the background of how the flipping technique started. You know, every, pretty much everyone on that's, that's listening flips. And um, yeah. It's pretty interesting. You know, I think a lot of people know that D Thomas was kind of behind it, but man, you've interviewed a lot of these guys and have really dug deep. Um, one thing I thought was pretty interesting was it was, it was controversial in the beginning. Uh, can you explain like why yeah. it was controversial? Why guys didn't really love the fact that D was going out there beating them flipping in tournaments. So, uh, Y'all probably heard of the uh, the term Thule dipping. And that was essentially, even back in the 50s and 60s, it was considered a meat uh, angler's way of catching fish. You got a 12, 14, 16 foot pole that you tied, uh, you know, 12, 14, 16 foot of uh, Dacron line to. Uh, you would put uh, some sort of a lure on the other end of the line, and then you would dip it over the tools or you would dip it you know into deep pockets where there's a bunch of wooden stuff and you just shake the tip of the rod and you know hoist a fish out when when you get bit and uh even in the 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 late 60s early 70s when the tournaments uh started they hadn't banned rods that long but it was kind of a gentleman's agreement that nobody's going to do this and they knew that thomas up in uh you know the northern california range was was doing that type of stuff but thomas was was thomas and he wanted to start fishing these tournaments with a guy named frank out um and frank's another story he actually invented living rubber so we have him to thank for all the the jigs that we have now today um and so anyway uh d asked uh wayne cummings uh and, and some of the other early tournament uh, guy organizations like Dave Coolidge from the California Lunker Club what's it gonna take for me to be able to fish your tournament and they said well the only thing in the rules says is that your rod has to have a reel attached to it so they they got loose hogger rods uh, back this is back in you know when, when Lou Childry was still alive and was really you know doing a lot for the fishing industry technology wise uh, they got uh, 12 foot hogger rods and put reels on and started kicking everybody's butt uh, in Northern California flipping. And finally, uh, some people started complaining and uh, Wayne Cummings uh, went and said, yeah, you've got to do something with these rods. Uh, everybody's calling it Thule dipping. And, and he said, all right, screw it. How long do they have to be? And uh, Cummins said seven and a half feet. So they literally went out, cut four and a half feet off their rods and uh, put a reel on the damn thing and kicked everybody's butt the next event. But what they didn't realize, 
Yeah, he can see. Well, so I sent you a picture last night. Did you see that picture of him sitting in that 12 foot Gregor with I have a straddling a freaking two by 12? Yeah. I mean, that's how he fished. It was insane. Uh, you know, you, you can put D. Thomas in a corner and he's going to fight his way out. And he's going to figure out how to kick your butt anyway. That's cool, and dude. So that picture of him straddling that two by 12 in the front of his Gregor was actually the 1977 Tournament of Champions at Lake Abyssu for Western Bass. And he beat everybody by 10 pounds. And the other top two guys in the tournament were uh, Dave Myers, and I can't remember the other guy's name, and they won flipping two. So uh, the top three places in that event were, were on flipping. But anyway, what happened when they made him, you know, take his rod down to seven and a half foot is they actually made him more effective because that's when he learned the, the, really how effective it was to pull line with his left hand and use the rod to pitch essentially or, or flip uh, the jig real close to the surface of the water, you know, real quiet entry. Uh, and you could, you know, control what the heck you were doing with that lure while it was in the water. And if you look at that other article that I sent you, the one that was from the 1970, I think it was June 1974 CLC or California Lunker Club newsletter, uh, that was the, the first article ever written on it. He stated specifically that they made him more effective because of that. Funny how things work out sometimes. Very yeah, interesting. Exactly. <laughs> That's yep. funny. So, so I guess he was one of the first guys to do it. Um, and it's interesting. Listen, so he took it. What year did he take it back east? 1975? That was 75, and he went to Bull Shoals. Actually, he went to Sam Rayburn first. Now, at this point, uh, him and Dave Myers, and Dave Myers was in charge of all research and development at Fenwick out of Westminster, California. And Dave, uh, at the, at, in, in 74, uh, uh, Frank and Dee were sponsored by Lou's. Dave Myers got a hold of him and said, hey, we want to develop a flipping stick with you. Um, and so D said, okay, you know, money talks and they set up some sponsorship sort of deal. They developed the flipping stick, uh, which the original ones were all old yellow, uh, uh, e-glass, I believe. And, uh, it was one piece, seven and a half feet long. And, uh, that's what he ended up taking to Sam Rayburn. Well, D got to Sam Rayburn and, you know, Rayburn, I mean, it's all, you know, stick-ups and trees and, and all that stuff and he, he got overwhelmed too much cover uh and uh he, he bombed big time and then he goes to bull shoals for the next tournament uh dave and fenwick are paying the bill uh and uh he won the thing and he won the thing in grant's style 12 or 15 pound you know deficit to the second place guy um and that still everybody thought it was a fluke uh, nobody outside of the West understood the effectiveness of the technique. Who really brought it to the national forefront was Dave Gleeby. So Dave Gleeby goes back East in 76 and 77. Uh, D stayed out West, didn't want anything to do with the national scene. He was happy taking everybody's, you know, money in, in, in Northern California, Southern California, Arizona, Nevada, you know, all that stuff. But Gleeby goes back there, and in 77, he wins three tournaments in a row uh, to the tune of about 100 grand. That's insane, uh, dude. Yeah, yeah, it was nuts. And, and these three tournaments in a row were in less than a month. So he wins a Bassmaster tournament, he wins a Basscasters Association tournament, and he were, wins an American Bass Fishing Association uh, tournament, you know. And... Uh, that's really when people started taking notice. Um, and then, uh, you know, Gary, you know, Gary was a, a, a fledgling of D. Uh, in fact, it was D. Thomas that told Gary back in the 78 timeframe um, that you need to, to go east if you want to be a professional fisherman. There's no, there's nothing for you out here in the West. Go east. So G Gary started fishing the Bassmaster events and uh, literally packed up his van, uh, hooked up his boat, and went east with seven rods, and they were all flipping stuff. 
That's cool. So, I read that in the article. That's awesome. And he, he missed Angler of the Year by one pound to Roland Martin. And throughout the year, I mean, he had numerous fish that would have, you know, given him that extra pound because back then it wasn't a points system. It was a, it was a how many pounds can you catch in the year system, which thankfully that was changed. But So, Terry, at that time, do you know what, what other – techniques were popular i mean what what were they beating with the flipping stick what were i mean were guys just texas rigging casting that type of stuff or what uh that uh you know everybody in the south throws spinner baits uh mm-hmm. top water uh jigs you know it was it the the flipping technique what it really did was it, it allowed the angler to precisely position the lure where the fish are and, and still today that it, that is the case yeah um but yeah they were Glebe and, and Gary uh, were able to do that over guys that were just blindly fishing. And like Dee said in that one article that I sent you guys, um, he could make three or four flips to one person's cast. So in his, his head, he was fishing four times as much water as anybody else and uh, doing it way more effectively than anybody oh, else yeah. because none of his cast was wasted. Yeah. What, Josh, uh, this last what? week... This last week at Heavy Hitters, what percentage of the field do you think flipped? Yeah, that's that's funny because it's it's yeah, it's one of those techniques that has continued to gain popularity. And even now we're talking about all the electronics. There are still tournaments where, yeah, probably eighty percent of the field caught their bass flipping. And it was more it's right. you know, and you, you, you reference in the article, I think, in one of the articles, it's more pitching now than actual uh flipping but it's this, it's the same yeah. thing uh basically you know so uh quite interesting that um it's still obviously is is one of those techniques that's never gone away and it's and now we consider it kind of an old school technique right like you know uh anytime biffles in the hunt at a tournament it's like okay yeah he's doing it old school way he's up in the back of a creek flipping you know so uh yeah. and it's only been 40 years or whatever but um what uh, let's talk about the bait a little bit too. Like, so all these guys that like the original flippers, they were basically, they were all flipping a jig and it started as a marabou jig, right? No, it was a, it was a hair jig. Uh, it was, it was tied on a banana head. Okay. And then the, the weed guard that they would use was actually a polyethylene fiber that they would get out of lawn chairs. So no kidding back dude. then. Yeah. So back then the polyethylene was pliable so you could bend it and it would hold its shape. And so what they would do is they'd take a lawn chair, take it completely apart uh, <laughs> and, and cut sections of this stuff. I mean, so when I was working at the tackle store, when I was a kid, if we needed new weed guard material, I'd go down to the hardware store. I'd buy three or four, <laughs> three or four lawn chairs and I'd go back and I'd just dismantle them and we'd, we'd sell this stuff as weed guard material. Wow. And uh, that was like 78, 79, 80 um, before the real stiff weed guard, you know, material came out back with the Archie jig. How effective um, was it, man? It was unbelievable. And, and the beauty of it was that when a fish ate it and it was coming through their mouth, it collapsed. So you would, you would fashion it on the jig so it would come. So you've got your, your hook like this. You would fashion it on the right behind the head of the jig and the eye to where it would loop up like so, uh-huh. okay? And then when the fish ate it, it would collapse completely and you could hook them. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was really cool. So what they would do is they would tie the weed guard on, they'd push the weed guard forward, and then they'd start wrapping bucktail on it. And, uh, you know, I'm sure some guys, I mean, you could flip anything, right? So maybe some marabou was you know, put in there too. I won't say that it wasn't. That was just, uh, I, was I don't know, that just came out. I had no idea if they did that or not, but that's, I yeah, guess it was but, bucktail. Yep. Yeah. So it was mostly, uh, it was mostly bucktail and then they would take an action worm. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember the, uh, the, the action breathing worm. Uh, they would put no. that on there. They'd put a, they'd put a lizard on there. Uh, I mean, sometimes these baits were six, seven inches long. Uh, but the main deal was, is that primarily, uh, it was black that you were that you were flipping. It's crazy yeah. that you know, yeah. D probably won that tournament at Bull Shoals flipping like a black jig, and uh, now you can't even yeah. imagine 
flipping a black bait at Bull Shoals because it's just it's clear water and you know the lake right. might have been a little different back then, but I guess those fish also were just so unpressured. Um, they'd never seen a bait presented in a bush like that before, man. Yeah. Well, so I was uh, doing a little bit of research last night and I came across the 1977 Western Bass magazine that I have. It was actually the magazine that I pulled that picture out of with nice. D straddling that two by 12. And uh, he's back in uh, the, the, the Thule's at Havasu in between, I would say it was probably in between uh, the, the mouth of the river and Blankenship. And uh, you know the water there. I mean, you can see 30 feet of in 30 feet at, at Havasu. Yep. And uh, again, he was fishing black. a black jig. That's so. cool. Uh, so that evolved a little bit. Guys started to use skirted jigs just to, like in the right around 1980, right? Yeah, when the Archie jig came out, I think it was probably 82 or 83, something like that. Okay. Uh, it was right after, or right, right along the time I was getting out of high school. And, uh, and then they started, you know, pitching that. But so now you got 77, Gleeby goes back and kicks everybody's butt. Now Gleeby's got people like Roland Martin, uh, Basil Bacon. Uh, so Gleeby used to run with, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Gleeby ran with Basil. Um, and uh, they, they were, everybody was, Gleeby was teaching all the competition on how to do this technique, essentially. But it really didn't get any national notoriety until Hank Parker won the classic in 79 at Texoma. And uh, that's when it really went east. It's, it was, it's kind of like the drop shot scenario. You know? Drop shotting uh, in the west was brought, to, was brought from Japan. Uh, and what was it, 86, 87, 88, uh, the Japanese that were fishing the U.S. Open were using it. But nobody really glommed onto it. Then in the in the mid '90s, people started using it. Aaron being one of them, and uh, he started, you know, doing it. I think I wrote the first actual article on uh, drop shotting in 2000. Dude, uh, that was do you have that on the website? Can you get your hands on that? I don't have. I don't. I don't have that on the website. It was actually published in Inside Line, uh, which was Yamamoto's rag, and uh, it's in paper. I could probably scan it and. You know, put that I'd on the be website. cool to see that yeah. one too, dude. As a drop shot nerd. Yeah, it was boy, boy, things have changed. <laughs> Terry, I think I was at the I was at the first tournament that it really became popular. Um, I think Aaron won it. It was at Orville. Yep. Uh, Kota Kiriyami did really well. Um, yep. But yeah, I, I remember that. I was I was there. It was and we were just like, what the heck is going on? These Rob, you're still well, throwing a black hair jig, right? I was throwing, <laughs> yeah, yes, with a. With a lawn chair weed guard. Yeah. <laughs> that's why you lost, bro. Catch up with the times. Right. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so after Gleeby teaches everybody, you know, how to do this technique, uh, Hank Parker, you know, brings us some notoriety by winning the classic. Uh, now you're starting to have guys not just throw the black hair jig. They're throwing living rubber jigs because they're out now. Um, and they're throwing worms and lizards and, and things like that. Um, so. so I saw in there that that basil bacon had actually kind of, was it the first creature bait? Or would you call that the first creature bait, man? That, uh, that bait that he had kind of designed to flip? The bacon rind. Bacon, bacon rind, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no. So here's an actual uh, uh, article that is on the website right now, and it's, the, the, the title of the article, I think I called it, The Creature Isn't from the Black Lagoon, and it's nice. on the first creature bait. And the first creature bait, again, was uh, Bobby Garland. So there's an old name for you, Rob. Uh, Rob. Um, yeah. Garland developed the gets it. And uh, the gets it, or the tube, um, he would take and jam worms up the tube and, you know, uh, melt uh, uh, spider skirts on the front of it and do all that. And in an old Western Bass magazine, I can't remember if it was 80 or 81, where uh, one of the writers uh, actually did a piece on it. And because and, Garland had won a Havasu events up in the Topak Marsh uh, using this thing. And the only thing that, that Garland would call it would be the 
a creature bait. And so that's where the creature bait terminology got coined. Interesting. Was in 8081 with him gluing stuff together and making a bait that, you know, nobody had seen before. So that's oh, where cool. the creature bait came. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right on. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, Basil came up with the bacon rind. Uh, they were coming up with all sorts of crazy stuff. But the other thing that Basil brought was the flipping feature. And, you know, back in the day, and Rob remembers this because there's not many reels anymore that, that have an actual flipping uh, switch on them anymore. So what they found in the old days when you had a push button instead of a thumb bar is that when you're real, let's say you, you, you make a flip and you need to, to hit the, the, the button to allow some more line to go out, you actually have to switch hands because this is back before the days of left-hand retrieve reels uh, and then crank the handle to get the reel to engage. And Basil's like, yeah, I don't, I don't want that. So he and Gary Klein uh, were in his shop and they actually fabricated uh, the first flip and switch uh, that went into a, a reel. And the reel at the time was a 4500C Abu Garcia. And uh, so Basil's got the, 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 I guess, patent without a patent on the flip and switch. And interesting. So, he, so we don't oh, go ahead. I say we don't flip anymore per se. Uh, and if you did flip, that feature would be really instrumental in, in the technique. Most everybody's pitching these days. And right. they're they're fishing with their left hand or cat, you know, pitching with their left or right hand. And you know, people are way more ambidextrous, so you don't have to change hands and stuff like that. It's interesting how that equipment's evolved like that too, because like the, the it's, it's now you see more pitching. Uh, the reels are a lot faster, right? So like pitching when you had a slow gear ratio reel would have been, you know, really really difficult. So reels are so much faster. Maybe it's partly because these fish are a little bit smarter, so you got to back off of the fish a little bit more. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, it's it's interesting. I actually have been on the boat with uh, with Clyde, and uh, he like I th I think if I'm gonna go out and flip all the uh, flip and pitch, I just say flip as that general term. But I might make yeah. five thousand pitches, and I'll still make. 25 flips right you get in that scenario where you're a little closer or whatever and you end up making some flips throughout the course of the day but when you fish with some of the guys that really were were there when flipping actual flipping was so big like klein uh, dude he'll flip a lot still like he definitely pitches but he will flip maybe half of his presentations instead of, you know, 2% of his presentations. And it's, it's amazing to watch, dude. Like it, you sit there and watch him flip and it's like, Whoa, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you just kind of want to stop fishing and just watch, watch him do it. Cause it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty dang cool. Yeah. It, you know, it's a short line technique, you know, pitching uh, can be anywhere from, you know, 10 foot pitch to, you know, 35, 40 foot pitch. Um, but flipping is generally, uh, maybe twice as long as the rod that you're using, uh, you know, 10 to 14, 15 feet. Uh, and the thing about it is, is that because you got so little line out, you can have instant feedback and you can get that fish out of the cover a heck of a lot easier, right? In, in, in my thinking, at least. I mean, in, in, at least that was Dee's thinking, too. Uh, he didn't want to fight the fish. He wanted the fish in the boat before it knew it, even he got hooked. Yep. So, yeah, and, and yeah, obviously if you, you can't argue with with what he's done with it, man. It's, it's no. the proof is in the pudding. He's correct. Yeah, pretty yeah. cool, man. Uh, so let's talk about uh, the timeline of like how the equipment evolved a little bit in in flipping and pitching. Like when uh, when was the first tungsten weight? Because let's okay, let, let's dude. What did a one ounce lead weight look like how big was that <laughs> it was about a mile long and <laughs> no they were big they were giant in fact i don't think they even made a one ounce worm weight back then i think a half ounce was the biggest that they made and they were giant i mean just a man yeah. one ounce 
egg sinker looks. Yeah, no, that Rob, correct me if I'm wrong, but I I don't think I ever saw one. No, it was. I actually still have some three quarter ounce ones that we would use for Carolina rigging, just a a bullet weight. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't recall a one ounce either. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when did uh, tungsten start? So, two thousand. Yeah, I would say it was two thousand. Um, and tungsten isn't. The thing about tungsten is it starts out as a powder, and it's not melted and poured into a, a, a mold like they do lead. So it starts out as a powder, and then they compress it in a in a high pressure. It's called a hot isostatic press. Interesting. And it's pressed into a mold uh, shape. Yeah, and uh, that's why you look at uh, tungsten weights, uh, and and some of them look like they should weigh you know like an ounce, but they're really only three quarters, or because it has to do with the actual amount of tungsten that's in it. But were those were those guys back in the day? Were they flipping super heavy weights, or were they flipping quarter and quarter, up to half? Yeah, or? quarter, three eighths, half ounce, five eighths. I think was the about yeah. the most that they would do. Yeah, um, it, they were. My early years of flipping. I mean, we would flip a quarter ounce worm weight all the time, or a three eighths ounce um, Arky style jig. You know, that was a half ounce was a heavy one at that time. So yeah. And if you were pitching a Texas style, you know, worm or what have you, uh, you, you pegged the sinker with a toothpick. Yep. No, oh, good. Okay. And, there's uh, a good one, dude. was the pegging system. Yeah. The toothpick. When I first got into fishing, toothpicks were the way to peg. Uh, yep, that's yep. another one. They're just, they found a little bit, little bit better way. Now the bobber stop is a hundred percent. The, uh, the universal peg nowadays, but the toothpick, mm -hmm. man, that is hilarious. Would you would Other you lose cheap. your toothpick every fish you caught? Did you have to put a new toothpick in? No, it no, stick in there pretty good. It, and not only that, but it would swell up because the toothpick's dry, and you put it in water, and it swells up. And sometimes you'd play hell to get the damn toothpick out of your you know three cent sinker. <laughs> that you, is... wanted to, you wanted to save that three cent sinker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's wild. I love it, man. That, that that's another one I totally kind of forgot about. Um and Gosh, have a, you have you have you flipped with a lead um bullet weight in the last five years? Have you done that? Oh, not not recently. I started when I started fishing, it was okay. still lead for sure. Like but, uh, my favorite thing is when you have one bullet weight and you flip with it all day and there's all those teeth marks on it. Yeah. <laughs> like you don't get that on tungsten. No. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's awesome, dude. That's a, that's when you know you've had a good day of fishing for sure. It's like a badge of honor hey, on your bait. Terry, right. um, Brett Hyde and Josh just wear me out because I still have lead weights in my boat. So I get a lot of crap for that. <laughs> well, we should go fishing, Rob, because we yes. have the same tackle. At least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, Rob, you still have some reels with flipping switches, right, dude? So I've got, I've got left-handed Daiwas. They're, um, they were, I'm trying to think the year, probably late nineties. Um, and in the late nineties, they were a $400 plus reel. I mean, they were a really high end reel and they have a little trigger on the top of them, um, that you can engage or disengage it. And it, um, I mean, they're awesome because you can just flip with your right hand. You don't even need to put your left hand near it until you're ready to reel a fish in or reel the bait in completely. Cause I would just click it in, engage it with my thumb and then just flip the the reel handle with my finger underneath it. But yeah, I I guarantee you won't see many of those reels around. I think I have like four of them. But eBay. Yeah, and then the Shimano came out with their version of it called the Castake in uh, yes the mid mid to late nineties, I believe it was. Yep. Yeah, yep. I had a I had a, about three or four of those things. Yeah, nice. they were just they were heavier and clunkier. I think I replaced my Castakes with these Daiwas back back then. Okay. And I still use them today. That's what's weird. I mean, it's uh, they're still a great reel. So, yep. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. So, man. Uh, I actually have an, it's a Gen 2 flipping stick in the corner over here. Let me go get it real quick. So he talks in the uh, in the articles too about like how one of the big snags like in in these long rods where the rod lockers. Oh wow! Look at this thing. We'll get back to my point. Let's see this rod. The listeners, we're going to have to kind of That's describe this for you. What year is this thing? This is probably circa 78. Yeah. No kidding. Um, 
Yeah, you know, you got the the, the, the Fenwick, it's upside down. I'm gonna hit my, my motor here. So you got the, you know, Fenwick, and then up here it says flip and stick. Oh, it's all no, worn that, off. That's cool. Is that a fiberglass rod? And, and then the rod? other thing is, is that it was, this is a Fenglass rod. Uh, so yeah, it's fiberglass. Uh, collapsible handle. Um, so it would fit in the rod locker. Now, remember, back in the mid-70s, a 17-foot boat was huge. Uh, I mean, my first bass boat was a John boat that was essentially converted into a bass boat. The second boat was a 16-foot water glass boat. And the rod lockers were no longer than six foot. And so you had to have something that would actually go into your rod locker. And so Dave Myers and... Uh, and uh, Thomas developed this collapsible rod uh, handle. And it, you know, comes out and it's ready for action. Um, this thing is a club. I mean, it weighs, you put a, you put a 5,000 C on it or a 5,500 C or a 4,500 C on it, and you've probably got close to a pound in your hand. Um, you know, it's- fear. <laughs> High yeah, sensitivity. You, very yeah very sensitive <laughs> <laughs> wow. i would think i would think terry it's really tip heavy too being fiberglass isn't it does it it's feel unbelievably tip heavy and that's yeah. why you had to have such a big ass excuse me a that's big right. reel on it yeah. to, to balance <laughs> the weight out it. you know right and, and then you put a five eight ounce jig on the on the front end of it and holy mackerel you end up with popeye arms by the yeah. end of the day yeah uh, yeah it was uh but back then we knew no, we knew different. I mean, I, yeah. I remember I learned to flip on Lake Elsinore in Southern California. And uh, I was, you know, what, 16, 17 years old and, and young and, and, and it didn't bother me. Uh, if I was to do it today, I'd be cramped up and, you know, have, you know, crab hands within the first hour of the morning. Yeah, that thing looks like tennis elbow to me. <laughs> <laughs> seriously seriously yeah it'd be very yeah well then then it, go ahead go ahead terry we want to hear you man go ahead i was going to say then in, in what was it 74 fenwick uh was the first rod company to, to actually use graphite but it literally took them five or six years to figure out how to use graphite and make the flipping stick and uh so you didn't see uh you did not see Fenwick graphite flipping sticks until about the 79, 80 time frame. Um, and then when they came out, I mean, they were, God, they were expensive as heck. Um, but yeah, I think a, a, a standard Fenwick pistol grip bass rod was about 55 or $60 back then. Uh, but their flipping stick was over a hundred. Huh. It was a huge difference in, in cost uh, because of the way that it had to be made with that you know, retractable handle and, and, and all that. That's cool. I definitely had a few of those telescopic, you know, retractable handle rods, you know, it, uh, nowadays boats can easily, even, even the 17 and 18 footers, they've designed them to be able to handle that rod. But, um, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't that long ago, dude, that, 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 you know, basically every single flip and stick would, would telescope. So pretty, uh, yeah. pretty interesting. Hmm. Yeah. The other thing about the design of the flipping stick is that the rod up at the tip, I mean, and, and this isn't because of it, it being built with, with fiberglass, uh, why it's so thick. And I mean, literally that thing is three sixteenths of an inch, maybe five or, you know, 30 seconds uh, in diameter. It's, it's huge. Why? But the, the, the reason for that was, is that the rod has all sorts of beef from the tip down to about the first guide, the stripper guide. And the reason for that is that they wanted to make the tip extremely stiff. So when you are at the beginning of your hook set, all the power up in the front, you know, the top of the rod or the tip of the rod is driving that hook home. And then in the butt section of the rod is actually thinner walled fiberglass. And that's where you actually had your bending, uh, which would allow you to be able to fight a fish and then not be able to pull off. So the rod bent all down in here. And when you were fighting the fish, the, the, the upper section of the rod was straight because it didn't bend. 
huh. or it didn't bend as much. And that's and that was the problem that they had designing the rod in graphite is that they couldn't get the right action to where they wouldn't break. Because they would just explode the first ones. They would explode. They would explode in the, in the butt the down low. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Yep. yep Dude, exactly. To, to have the knowledge that that was what they needed and to be able to develop that, that's very interesting to me. That they said, this is what oh, we need. And it's, it's very cool. Yeah. And, and that was all D. Thomas. It, it, D. Thomas explaining what he needed. But Dave Myers, uh, as the developer, uh, taking what D's words and actually putting it into action. Uh, that was a pretty amazing thing because me as an engineer, um, you know, I can tell someone something until the cows come home about what I need, but it's that machinist or what have you uh, that actually can decipher what I'm saying and put it into into something that that actually works. So yeah, Myers and uh, and D were an amazing team. Terry, have you have you fished with that rod? Have you tried to catch a fish on it lately? No, I've caught a lot of fish. I've ever? caught a lot of fish on this. Report. You have. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. This is this so is that's my original flipper. You won't. No way. Nice, nice. Yeah. That's cool. Very cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I've got uh, I've got some. Uh, so this is a second gen rod. The original flipping sticks were not one piece. Uh, they were yellow uh, Fenwick glass, uh, and or they were and they were not collapsible. So they were one piece construction, and. People didn't buy them because they wouldn't fit in the rod locker or they wouldn't fit in the boat, period. I mean, a 16-foot boat, and you got a seven-and-a-half-foot stick in it, you know, there's not much room for it. So that was when Myers came up with the collapsing, uh, you know, concept. Uh, and then over there in the corner, I've got a Gen 1 HMG graphite flipping stick and then a Gen 2 HMG graphite. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, i got a Gene Loomis over there also. I've mean, I probably got eight flipping sticks. So your you know, garage varying like, in age. It's basically a museum of the evolution of flipping sticks, man. Oh, and not only that, pistol grip rods. I mean, I still have my full set of uh, eight or nine Phoenix boron pistol grips sitting over yeah. there in the corner. Awesome. <laughs> all Heck five, yeah. six foot, all five, five foot, six inches of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and I have one that was a fifty-three M that I used for underhand roll casting spinner base that was a fifty-three M, so it was five feet three inches. Wow. That would and feel so still, weird in, in our hands today. Uh-huh. But, dude, when it comes to underhand roll casting in really, really tight confines, you can't beat it. Yeah, yeah so, and, and it, it boggles my mind that nobody on tour uses a rod like that anymore uh, because they're, they're really handy. I mean, I have it in the boat every time I go out. No kidding. You still do. Yes. You have a five-foot yes. rod in your boat, dude. <laughs> yes, it's the only one. Everything else is, you know, six ten and above. Uh -huh. uh, but yeah, but no, I, I still have that damn. Five, I replaced the handle because Rob, you probably remember this. Those old Fuji pistol grips. Yep. They would break after you know so many use, years of yep. wear. Right there at the nut that you would put the reel uh, on, and they would you, you'd set the hook on a fish, and boom, you've got rod flying this way, a pistol grip in your hand, and the reel's going somewhere else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wow, dude, that's yeah, amazing. I replaced the handle on that thing probably three or four times. Pretty cool. Yeah, no, I always keep it's in the boat all the time. I wonder so, if there will become a time where that stuff becomes desirable as like collector's items. Is there any you know desirability or market for that right now? Oh yeah, without a doubt. Go to go on eBay. Some of the old original Fenwick bunker sticks are going for a couple hundred bucks. Okay. Um, so yeah, there is definitely. I could probably sell this. Even with the missing guide, I could probably sell this flipping stick for 200 bucks on the internet right now. But you know, like you, if you look at like fly fishing and stuff, there are uh, bamboo fly rods that are like four Thousands digits and five digits of value. Yep. I wonder if wow. we'll ever get to that or if no. maybe as a, as a community, I, we're just interested in high tech and that's just what it is. Well, look, look at eBay, type in Abu 2500C or Abu 1500C, which is the old a uh, uh, small diameter uh, uh, casting level reels. line. Uh huh. Yeah, uh, those things are going for thousands of dollars. So, so it's probably a matter of time until rods get to that level of desirability, too. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's possible that it'll happen, but uh, I don't know. It, it, it might. How, 
So um, I was reading in the article where Gary Klein came up with the weapon jig and yeah. um, I remember buying those in the late eighties. Do you remember those Josh at all? I don't think so, man. And it looks, yeah. you look yeah. at that thing in the, in the photo on Terry's website and it looks like a pretty modern jig, man. The head design Very is modern. sleek. Uh, the skirt yep. looks good. Like it's a jig that dude, I mean, if it had a, a, a current hook in it, I, I would use it literally. Right. Yep. Well, yep. no, that's the thing is that Gary Klein, uh, he used to run with a guy named Rich Forehand. Um, and Rich is the one that, so so Klein loses Angler of the Year in, uh, what was it, 79, his first year on tour. Uh, and he was fishing the Mr. Twister keeper hook. And a lot of the fish that he lost, because he's pitching or flipping, you know, 25-pound test, most of the fish that he lost were because that keeper hook opened up on him and he would keep complaining to rich and uh, rich found a hook out of uh, the UK made out of Sheffield steel. And it was a round, uh, round point uh, hook that you couldn't straighten out. And they were buying them, I believe from herders at the beginning. And then they just sole sourced it out of the UK. That hook today is what started the revolution in hook technology. Uh, from, you know, companies like Gamakatsu and Mustad, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we have Gary and Rich Forehand to thank for that. That hook was an amazing hook. And it, today, it was also the first flat eye hook used in a bass jig. You remember that, Rob? I don't, know. no. Yeah, so if you look, if you look at a weapon jig, the, the eye comes out and it's not vertical. Okay. The eye comes yep. out of the head and it's flat. And uh, that was all part of the design process uh, between Gary and, and Rich. And Rich also, he was a custom rod builder and he was the go-to guy, even in the late nineties for the big, um, you know, like the seven, six or seven foot glass cranking rods huh. Yep. that, yeah, he was a lot of guys. And I'm sure Gary probably had a, a hand in that also. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. He's in the Orville area, if I remember right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Gary's still designing baits and stuff today for Berkeley. And he's got so much when it comes to like the technical knowledge of, of jigs and jig heads and hooks. Like there's just, there's nobody better. Like you just, uh, no one understands that dynamic of it better than than him and, and the, the purpose of that flat eye, eye jig was to come through cover better or was it to hook fish better or both both so it mainly it was designed so it would come through wood a heck of a lot better than wooden grass even uh, yep. better than an eye that was vertical yep but it was also meant to rolling. help exactly and it was also meant to help hook the fish better because you know, it's coming through the mouth as you're setting the hook. Uh, it's not opening the mouth as much as a, 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 a vertical eye would. And uh, it was pretty cool. And not only that, the hook was short. Uh, it was a really, really short shank hook. And so the point was really close to the eye. It was a, it was a neat jig. I still got a, probably a couple dozen of them in, my, in one of my old boxes. Um, then they also designed a, a, a head called the Monogar. And so it was a, a, a head just like that uh, that had a piece of monofilament sticking out of the top just behind the eye. And so you would have the jig, you would put a trailer on it, and then you'd bring that monofilament back and you'd stick it in the plastic behind the bend of the hook. And that was a really cool, That's the th that, was, that was the weed guard. And it was a piece of like 80 pound mono or 60 pound mono. Uh, that they used and I actually they made them in uh, one sixteenth ounce all the way to half ounce and that's what I used in the sixteenth and eighth ounce for my tubes. You could shove the the uh, monofilament up the, the tube, push the head up in and uh, and then wrap it back around into the tube and you had a, an amazing uh, tube weight or tube jig head. That's cool. Go ahead Rob. So, um, tell us a little bit about Dave Glebe and and his, I mean, obviously he won those tournaments in the late seventies and, but the guy's won the U S open multiple times. He's won 50 some bass boats. And do you feel 
majority of his wins were flipping even later on? Uh, I would say, yeah. yeah. Maybe not the open, obviously. Well, I, it could I have mean, been. Open Absolutely definitely. could have been. Oh, yeah. Up, yeah. In the, up in the Overton arm. Because I think he won it when it was super high, if I remember right. Okay. La- one of his last ones. But, yeah, I mean, that, that guy is like – It'd be cool just to break him down and on his history of bass fishing because he had such a long span, you know, through the what early seventies all the way probably till two thousand or better, you know. Well, yeah, it was every tournament that he entered, he was a force to be reckoned with. I mean, yep. he could win any event, um, you know. And that, that was one of the one regrets that I had with that article is I wanted to get Glebe in that article and pinning him down. I, I could never pin him down. That's too bad. Yeah. He, uh, you know, it, it just, it, I guess. Oh, well, there goes my rod. Uh, (laughs) Now it's only worth 75 on eBay. Exactly. There goes another guide. (laughs) So, hey, dude, Um, I know you got somewhere to be in a little bit. I I hate to cut you off, but who was like the most, who's been the most, who's the guy that you've interviewed and been like, wow, I can't believe I, just got this story straight from straight from this guy or i can't believe i i oh, got wow. to talk to this guy uh gee whiz. um probably ricky green uh, you know and and that you know talking to d thomas on the phone and talking to dave myers i mean i grew up idolizing those guys yeah but from a bassmaster standpoint uh i would have to say it was ricky green because ricky green uh he was winning stuff in, in the in the early 70s, like 71, 72. Um, and I wanted a Ricky Green fishing machine made by Cajun when I was a kid. Oh. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was a 16-foot Cajun that, that ran like a raped, you know, scalded ape. And uh, <laughs> it was amazing. And I actually think that I was the last fisherman to talk to him. Um, before he passed away back in 13 or 14. Wow. Um, and we, yeah, he was, uh, he had lung cancer and was, you know, going through some stuff and, and was on the list to get a lung transplant. And uh, to put together the article that I did with him, uh, we spent about a week talking on the phone. And, but every time I talked to him, it was just one of those deals. Now I've talked to Clun a number of times and, and Rick is, uh, a wealth of knowledge about everything that has to do with bass fishing. It does. It's not just square bill crankbaits. It's you know buzz baits because he won the first tournament on a buzz bait uh, and uh, lunker lure. And you know, talking to Rick every time I talk to him, I get the chills. Uh, but I think the one that to me was, like I said, that was the most meaningful was talking to Ricky. You know, literally months before he passed away. That's cool, man. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, and so, like, so for our listeners that are going to go to your website, what are some of your favorite pieces that you've done, man? Like, uh, obviously, this flipping stuff um, is awesome. Yeah. But what are some other articles that you think would be uh, would get would get guys hooked on your website? Uh, so <clears throat> we, tr- I try to have articles that go in depth, like these flipping articles. You know, so we have the the development of flipping. Uh, this, you know, uh, that's a three-parter. We have the, uh, the development of the flipping stick, and then we have some other stuff on flipping. Uh, I try to take a technique or, or what have you and, and break it down and do a real thorough investigation into it. Uh, but some of the other stuff that we have on there are, are real short things, and we have a lot of old ads, which can be hilarious. I love those. Uh, I love those. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're just a quick quick a quick read or maybe you know three or four pictures uh the other ones like i like to look at the progression of technology so bass boats for example um you know we have the bass boat series on there you know 1970 boats 1971 soon we'll we'll be putting on uh 72 73 74 etc and essentially what i do is i have all these magazines um and i just go through the magazines and i scan the ads and it gives you an idea of you know how where we came from uh where we've been uh, and how that technology progressed over time and it's just 
way cool looking at a 16 foot boat that doesn't even have, I mean, flipping decks. There's another conversation that we can have. Back in the 80s, there was no such thing as a flipping deck. Uh, it was literally the, the front deck of the boat stopped at the pedestal mount, and that was it. It was all open, you know, open to the bottom of the boat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Dude, where are we going to be at in 40 years? Oh. Tackling boats. Like, do you feel like, <laughs> I mean, it, to me, some of the stuff feels like it's slowed down, but then you talk about electronics and that has sped up over the last 10 years. So like when you just stay home and virtually catch them. <laughs> What's it gonna be? Right. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, that, that, that's yeah. a sad thing. I don't think I don't think boat technology, unless some wonder material comes out, is gonna change. Uh if you look at the progression of the boat layouts, the only thing that really has changed over the last 10 or 15 years is more room to put more TVs on our boat. Yeah. You're right. right. Yeah, uh, your boat, your really 2008 is very similar as far as the hull design and hull everything design. like that to what we've got right now. My exactly. fear is what the wakeboard boats are going to look like in 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's I'm afraid of. The new yeah, hull design. 60 feet. <laughs> right. And the new hull design will just be how to stay upright in 17-foot rollers. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine one of the things coming out that they're probably working on now is electric boats, I would imagine. Electric Seriously. outboards or electric-powered boats. Yeah, and, and so there's a – God, Ike has a, an electric boat. I can't – remember that something pedo is the, the the motor that he has on the back of it but it requires like you know 18 lithium-ion batteries to run it and uh so it 16... only it can float in two inches of water right it hardly weighs anything yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you're saying but, yeah i think you're away. right rob what's that it's probably pretty far out there still if it takes that much battery power to get a boat to travel five miles per hour <laughs> yeah but look how well, fast teslas are I mean, that's right true yeah that's the thing is that electric motors have a hell of a lot more torque than gas motors and not only that it takes a while for uh, a gas motor or a diesel motor to get up into its power curve when you hit the if it hit the throttle uh so there's a lag time there whereas with electric motors as soon as you hit the pedal, it's at 100%. Yeah. So uh, I've seen some guys on YouTube that, that race electric cars, and they actually have to put a transmission uh, that allows the motor to uh, apply uh, power to the transmission and the, and the rear end uh, gradually so it doesn't twist you know, gears and, and, and stuff like that. Just like a trolling motor where they, they ramp up, otherwise they'd throw you out of the boat. You know? so, exactly. <laughs> which that's never happened to any of us. No. <laughs> yeah. Never. Well, uh, man, this has been totally. awesome, Terry. We, yeah. we could talk about a ton of stuff, and uh, we know it's, it's a Sunday and you got stuff going on. We all, we all do, but um, we'd love to yeah. have you back again, man. It would be awesome to talk yeah. again here after a little while and, and you know, maybe – you know, maybe uh, your next series of techniques or, or you know, what, what you write about, we can, we can have you back and, and go into detail on it. Cool. Yeah. I, 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 this has been a, an awesome morning. Um, uh, I appreciate you guys having me on and, uh, and I look forward to talking to you guys again sometime soon. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome yeah. anytime. And I, I thoroughly enjoy your website. It's uh, it's pretty cool to read some of the old history and Rob, you could just become a contributor to it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we're looking for contributors. We, we don't pay much, uh. <laughs> but like a firsthand witness, dude. You're like a first. I'm not. Account. Yeah, some of the stuff's way older than I am, but it uh, impossible. Yeah, I was going to ask if he was a field tester for Bobby Garland back in yeah. the day earlier. Um, <laughs> or if I was. <laughs> yeah. Uh. No, uh, dude. That's but yeah, it's been great. And and again, for the listeners, it's it's bass hyphen archives dot com. Correct. That is, that is right. That awesome. Is right. And, hey, one other cool, cool. thing that I, I think is awesome on your website, man, is you get a lot of feedback from your readers. Like in your comments, like your article itself is awesome. And 
there's always a handful of really cool comments and contributions from your readers below the articles where they have firsthand experience with that, you know, product or whatever the article is about. And, and you've got some, some real bass heads that uh, follow your site. And I know we've got some bass heads that listen, so I know they'd enjoy it. Cool. Yeah. And that's one thing, you know, when I started the website, I knew I was pretty solid on the Western history. Uh, but the longer I ran the website when it first went up in 2012, the more I realized how ignorant I was. Uh, and, you know, if you look at it like an onion, uh, my knowledge was maybe the first three, you know, uh, layers of that onion. And uh, the readers, in a lot of cases, uh, helped me learn. And uh, yeah. I'm still learning to this day. So research That's is never done. That's cool, man. I can tell you're really passionate about it and it shows in the, uh, on the site, but, uh, thanks again, man. Uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday and, uh, yeah, we'll definitely talk to you soon, man. We appreciate it big time. No worries, man. Thank you guys. Thanks. See ya.